Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Luke chapter 16, page 1050. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. And what we don't know tonight, please teach us. What we don't have, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, if you could keep that passage open, that nice simple passage, page 1050, that'd be a great help to you, uh, as well as to me. I think it's true to say that a a good parable is always going to be provocative and memorable, like a punchy joke. Here's one I heard the other day, it's a one-sentence one, blink and you miss it. My dad gave me an organ donor card last week, now there's a man after my own heart, okay, Tough crowd, I can see. Now, parables make us think and help us 
to remember. And we probably recognize instinctively what's going on here with the dishonest manager. He is, in fact, a steward, an estate manager. He's been entrusted with all of his master's estate to govern in his master's best interests. And in verses 1 and 2, the rich boss is unhappy with his management, and so he gives him the sack. Now, this is pretty normal. Wealthy land and property owners behave like this from time to time, convinced that their estate managers and maybe accountants are not handling their affairs properly. They like to take control again, get hold of their own affairs, and so sack them. A Christian friend of mine was the estate manager for a billionaire who lived locally uh, where we live, and he was constantly frustrated by his boss. Interference, lack of trust, and eventually wasn't surprised to find himself looking for a new job. This is, this is realistic stuff. Well, in verse 3, we notice that the dishonest and newly sacked manager is worried. He's really anxious about, about what he's going to do next. And so he should be. He says to himself, look at verse 3, I'm not strong enough to do hard labor, and I'd be too ashamed to beg on the streets. No social security net for him. Fear of penury can be very motivating, can't it? And it can create, create a sharpness of resolve as we concentrate on what we're going to do next. Alan Sugar, he's a very interesting man, isn't he? He recalls his early life in a Clapton council flat during the 40s and 50s. His father was a clothes factory tailor who'd occasionally alter clothes for a few extra pennies. His life was hard, and Sugar said this, I quote... My parents did their best, but not being able to have what I wanted made me determined to do something for myself, to be self-sufficient. And he had two experiences that made the difference for him. The first one was age 11. He wanted to make his mother a cake. So he went. He didn't have the ingredients, so he went around to neighbours and asked them if they would give him eggs and flour and all the rest of it, which they did. Lesson number one, you can actually persuade people to do what you want them to do. A little bit later, still at school, seeing builders resurfacing the roads and digging up and throwing away the tar-soaked wooden blocks that the road was laid on, he chopped them all up and started selling them as fire lighters. But it was a, a short-lived operation for Alan Sugar because the older boys in the flats realised what he was doing and pushed him out of the way and got in on the action. The lesson he learned then was always be aware that the competition is close behind. So if an excess of money tends to make people quite independent, the fear of penury not only makes you creative, but forces you to make friends who are going to see you through. And so we're meant to be concerned about the future. Jesus wants us all to be concerned about our future, our eternal future. So what does the dishonest manager do? He devises a scheme for making a few friends when he's out of a job. Friends who are going to see him right. And he's not told to clear his desk and leave immediately, so he's got this very small window to devise this very shrewd and sneaky scheme. Look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. It's vivid, isn't it? If verse 4 were a cartoon, it would be a big thought bubble. Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to get people to welcome me into their own homes. So what's this great idea? Verses 5 to 7. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? Ooh, a thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. And so with great haste, he makes each of the debtors sit down and he writes down their bill, reduces their bill in the accounts. What do you owe? 800 gallons of olive oil? Well, sit down quickly and change the bill to 400 gallons, okay? We'll settle it once and for all. What about you? 1,000 bushels of wheat? Take your, let's take the bill and reduce it down to 800. My master's almost certainly charging you interest, which he shouldn't do, and he'd be ashamed if it got out. How's that for you? I hope it helps. No, don't mention it. It's my pleasure. I only like to help. He's really smart, isn't he? He's made some useful friends who will feel obliged to offer him hospitality when later on they hear he's been sacked. You can imagine how that goes. Get the sack, did you? Yeah, real blow. Got kicked out of the house and everything. He thought I was squandering his wealth. I think it was reducing your bill that probably did it. But if you can't go out on a limb for a friend, then what's life all about? I don't suppose I could lodge with you until I sort myself out, could I? What a shrewd, shrewd man. We do grudgingly admire that, don't we? My uh, eldest daughter, when she was eight, was asked by her godfather if she would wash his car for five pounds, which she agreed to. And Steve, her godfather, went out for a walk. When he came back, his car had been washed, not particularly well. But he discovered it had been washed by Nicole's dopey younger brother. Um, And she paid him the princely sum of one pound while she sat indoors and read a book and then later collected the fiver. So the manager here, he's devious, he's dishonest, but very shrewd given that he's about to be out of a living. And unable to think of a realistic means of of not starving, he secures his future. And that's the key. Secure your future. As a fund manager friend of mine said, when you know the plane's going down, grab your parachute. And we do have a grudging admiration for people who, who manage to secure that golden parachute deal. They're sacked but offered a seven figure sum on the understanding that they don't compete. I don't know whether any of you have followed the, uh, is it on Netflix? I forget, uh, House of Cards. I confess, Ruth and I have seen all the seasons so far and very much looking forward to the latest one in the spring. Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey. When he's overlooked as Secretary of State, he doesn't crawl into a hole and die, but with his wife, he stays up all night and plots how he can secure his future. And what he does is he ingratiates himself to lots of other people, appears to do them favour, promotes them in order for them to welcome him into subsequent promotions. Here's a famous Frank Underwood quote, just to show you what kind of character he is. And it, this is Frank. Do you know what, the main, what is the main thing that separates a politician from the rest of the species? A politician is the one who would drown a litter of kittens for 10 minutes of prime time. That's the kind of character Frank Underwood is. But until he starts murdering people, we have this grudging admiration for him. Sorry, spoiler alert. Frank Underwood kills people. Now, 
Our dishonest manager is ingenious and shrewd about securing his future. So much so that even his boss can't help being impressed, verse 8. Did you notice that? For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of lights. I was speaking at Sheffield CU last Monday and uh, I got back so late I decided to to watch live the Trump-Clinton debate. And I could not believe that Donald Trump was boasting in front of 100 million viewers that he didn't pay taxes. Well, just so the master admires his servant for being so cunningly shrewd. And that is why people like Donald Trump go from millionaire to $9 billion in debt and then come back supposedly richer than ever. They are utterly focused on their future. One commentator says this of Trump. While the masses are fixated on the doing and the immediate results of their actions, the great ones, and he's thinking of Trump, the great ones are learning and growing from every experience, whether it's a success or a failure, knowing their true reward is becoming a human success machine that eventually produces outstanding results. Securing your future, establishing an eternal reward is what Jesus is commending here. Well, that's the easy bit, analyzing the shrewd manager. Of course, the hard bit is applying it to Christians. I tell you, verse 9, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Well, that's really simple, isn't it? That's what you do. Okay? So we might as well leave and put that into action this week. Now, verses 10 and 12 are not too difficult to draw immediate spiritual lessons from. If you scan those, down those verses, essentially be faithful with a little. You'll be entrusted with much. Be faithful with earthly things. And so be entrusted with spiritual things. You can't serve two masters. But we can't avoid that the immediate application from this story is verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I hope you share something of my struggle with this and will appreciate just how shrewd your manager, Paul Williams, is in preaching on the prodigal son last week and giving this to the visiting speaker. (laughs) Speaking to a bunch of students and many others about using your jobs and money, of course, two things they they don't have. Thanks, Paul. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. A literal reading of that would suggest that Jesus is commending dishonesty or equally problematic that he's suggesting that somehow you can use money to buy your way into eternal dwellings. Now if we've got a high view of scripture, if we really believe that Jesus is God and he regarded this as God's word, then we are not going to allow an interpretation to contradict vast tracts of scripture elsewhere. So clearly Jesus can't be commending dishonesty because of everything else he says about honesty. He can't be saying you can buy eternal life because of everything else he says, that it is only through him. The only thing we can contribute to our forgiveness is our sin. It's only by his death and resurrection. So it can't be that. So it's kind of easy, isn't it, if we just rule out what it can't mean. 
And of course, we're not looking for the literal meaning of this parable, but for the natural meaning. What does the author or the speaker mean? What's his intention? And we do that with any scripture. When we read in the Psalms that the mountains skip like rams, we're looking for the natural, not the literal meaning. And the, the literal meaning is, of course, uh, sorry, the natural meaning is that there was great rejoicing in the land rather than a peculiar tectonic display of skipping mountains. And the key thing to remember with parables is that they're normally only making one point. Some longer ones have two points. And so with the detail, we mustn't get too bogged down trying to to, to work out every bit of detail. The bulk of the material in the parable is to make the story more vivid, not to scrutinize the detail in every aspect, but to allow the story to beguile us, to, to draw us in until we get the sting of the tale. And a parable can get us to accept something quite radical and sometimes satirical to come under our guard because of the form it comes in. Again, a bit like a a joke. So what did you think of the dishonest manager? I'm sure at one level we would admire his shrewdness. Why? Because we naturally value material wealth and the security it brings. And we know that if we lose it, the next best thing is to have wealthy friends and family. So we're hooked. We follow the reasoning. It all makes sense. So what's the main point and how does it apply to us? Well, simply and generally put, use present opportunities for future gain. That's the general meaning of the, par- of the parable. We can be distracted by the detail later on, and it's important Whoever can be trusted with little can be trusted with much, and so on. But the main reason the dishonest manager is commended is because he used the present opportunity for future gain. He's not commended for dishonesty, but for being shrewd. Shrewd enough to make friends who offer him future security. So how are we going to obey verse 9? What does it mean to use worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves, So that when all the money's gone, we're going to be welcomed into eternal dwellings. How can you use your money in such a way that you can achieve that? Now, I'm convinced that the answer to this is just in the context of everything Jesus has been immediately saying beforehand and what he says immediately afterwards. To be a follower of Jesus, we've got to be focused on getting into his kingdom and getting others into it as well using our money and our lives for the furtherance of God's kingdom. So in the first instance, this isn't an appeal to be generous and sacrificial. To enter God's kingdom is first and foremost the sanest, most important thing you could ever do. A couple of chapters back, we're told about the rich fool, aren't we? He wasn't rich towards God, so he was a fool. If you were on the Titanic, how much would you pay for a berth in a lifeboat? We should pay everything you had. If Jesus is who he claims to be, we must follow him. We must secure our future. We must make sure we are in his kingdom. The treasure we store up in heaven is not money, though. But Jesus is suggesting here it's people. Our joy and our reward will be to welcome into heaven in eternal friendship by those we invested in spiritually. I think that's what's being said here. Now, I can hear you thinking, well, you would say that. Clergyman, evangelist, that's exactly what you'd say. 
Well, I have to say, I've been struggling really hard to get to grips with this. And I realize it's not what the commentators mainly say, but I'm really convinced it's a good fit with the surrounding context. So how does the surrounding context justify this interpretation of verse 9? Well, in the first instance, look back to chapter 15. We've got a group of three parables about a lost coin. Sorry, uh, yeah, uh, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And Jesus was addressing the Pharisees who criticized him for what? Well, chapter 15, verse 2, for socializing, verse 2, welcoming sinners and outcasts. Jesus' values seemed all wrong. And the three stories illustrate the welcome in heaven that people get, the welcome into eternal dwellings people get. So the the kind of sheep and the coin fall to one side. In verse 7, there's a party in heaven for one lost sinner who comes home. Verse 10, a party in the presence of God. Verse 24, there's rejoicing, the son who was lost is now found, rejoicing in heaven. So what is the Pharisees' response to God throwing a party in heaven for the repentant sinner, for the prodigal? It's very mean-spirited, isn't it? The elder brother, clearly the Pharisee, in verse, 5, uh, sorry, in verse 28 of chapter 15, he refuses to join the celebration. It's an ill-deserved reward. This prodigal has squandered all your money, your estate. He hasn't looked after it. And the Pharisee loves money. Loves the respectability that comes with money. He's mean-spirited and he's friendless. And Jesus and his disciples are offering hospitality to outcasts. Many of whom are getting into God's eternal kingdom where they're welcomed by the angels and others with a party. And we're meant to see the contrast. Jesus and his disciples are investing in a party full of outcasts and sinners who rejoice together, while the Pharisee is outside at the end of chapter 15. He's outside, he's the older brother, refusing to go to the party. You see, the younger brother had quite shrewdly, albeit with genuine repentance, had secured his future. When eating pig food, he says, what am I doing here? I could be home, I could just offer myself as a servant, because at least as a servant I'd have a warm bed and plenty to eat. But the Pharisee thinks it's a con. Similarly, with the parable following ours, one of Dives and Lazarus, the rich man ends up in eternity, alone and friendless. While Lazarus is welcomed into Abraham's bosom, into eternal dwellings. So this whole theme from chapter 15 right through chapter 16 is being welcomed home into eternal dwellings. That's at the heart. And in chapters 15 and 16, Jesus manages to contrast what God and the Pharisees value most. The Pharisees value money, and God values lost people being found and entering his kingdom. If a Pharisee loses a sheep, of course he goes and looks for it. Wool for clothing, meat for eating, the the sheep was of value to the Pharisee. That's where they kept a lot of their money. Obviously, if you lose a coin, you sweep the house and find it, and you celebrate when you find it. So why, said Jesus, can't you rejoice when God's prodigal son comes home? Why don't you value what God values? Why won't you come into the party? Well, there's a simple answer. The Pharisee loves money and can't forgive someone for squandering their father's estate. Look at our chapter, chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering 
at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What you people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus makes this very black and white, doesn't he? We either love what God loves or we love money. We can't serve both. We can't serve God and money. Now, if heaven isn't about friendship and relationship, then what is the treasure we've got stored up in heaven? We don't surely think it's money, do we? Disposable income to buy up pleasures, you know, the fast pass on the heavenly theme park. That would seem a little arbitrary, wouldn't it? That'd be a bit like God saying, you know, give away your money now. Don't be, buy, be preoccupied with buying stuff because when you get to heaven, I'll give you loads of money. You can indulge in endless pleasure. That's more like an Islamic vision of heaven. Abstain from wine, women and song now so that when you get to heaven, Allah can reward you with handmaidens serving you wine and withholding no pleasure from you. There's a strong continuity between what is of value to God in this life and what he values in the life of the world to come because he's unchanging. God's inheritance and what he shares with us is his people, his church. It's all about relationship. Just as Adam's greatest gift on earth was Eve, the relationship and the relationship he had with God, walking with God in the cool of the day. So, too, in the paradise of the world to come, it's all about relationship, being with the human Christ and his family, his people, forever. The Apostle Paul speaks of his inheritance and joy as the people he helped to become Christians and is able to present mature in Christ. He speaks of the Philippians and the Colossian Christians that way, and even the Corinthians. What motivates Paul in life and ministry? Colossians 1.28, he says, To this end, I labour and struggle with all God's energy, which so powerfully works in me, to present you mature in Christ. They are his reward in heaven. And what a reward will be Paul's. Welcomed by countless thousands of Gentiles as their apostle, indebted and loyal to him for all of eternity. If we are really shrewd, If we are truly rich towards God, we'll be securing an eternal welcome. We'll be offloading money, time, energy now in the work of the gospel. Helping the unsaved come to Christ. Building up the people of God. And heaven will be potentially full of people who are longing to welcome us in. To show gratitude and affection for the generosity we showed in our lives. For investing our time, our money, our energy in them. I live very near to a Christian boarding school called Kingham Hill School. And like many Christian Victorians, Charles Edward Baring Young used his vast wealth to profit those who were less well off. And he is the epitome, I think, of of verse 9. He ploughed most of his share of the Baring's bank fortune into rescuing orphan boys from the streets of London. He built Kingham Hill School for them. He picked them up off the streets, gave them love and education, and saw many come to a living faith in Jesus. He then built various halfway houses for them, secured factories for them to get jobs in. And then when the Church of England wouldn't allow his brighter boys to train for the Church of England, he turned his London mansion house into Oak Hill College and trained the brighter boys there. And both Kingham Hill School and Oak Hill College and managed 
by the Kingham Hill Trust. Bearings Millions are still invested in gospel ministry. Now, what would the Pharisees have thought of that investment? They would not have approved of spending money on those rough boys. Many of them were involved in petty crime and prostitution. Why would you throw your money at them? What kind of investment would that yield? Well, that's the right question, isn't it? What sort of welcome is Charles Baring Young enjoying in heaven? Can you imagine the joy? Surrounded by his boys, as he used to call them. Why is there joy? He invests, he got them off the streets. He shared his life. He gave everything he had, gave them an education, introduced them to Jesus, established them as not just mature Christians, but able to raise a family. Many, of course, lost their lives um, in the two uh, world wars. What an incredible welcome. I tell you, verse 9, use worldly wealth to secure those eternal dwellings. So Jesus calls that steward a shrewd man because he used his money to make friends so he'd be welcomed in eternal dwellings. So if we are to be shrewd with our money, with our lives, we'll actively invest in gospel ministry, in people. I sometimes think the enthusiasm of business people to make money and sort out their future um, does make the church seem a little bit indolent and complacent at times. They're really serious. And I have to ask myself, are we just playing at this or do we really believe that what we're doing, investing in people, really is forever? Are we actively planning about how we use our money and our time and our possessions to make friends with those who will welcome us into eternal dwellings? The world gets terribly excited about pouring over property brochures, looking at how much our house is appreciated. Surely it's the only sensible investment at the moment. Well, if we want to use our house to be an investment for eternity, this passage would say, open it up to other people. Come to church looking for people to invite for Sunday lunch, especially students, especially international students, the single person. Open up your home. It will be expensive. It will be costly as you watch red wine and coffee spilled on your favourite carpet and sofa. But gradually the Lord deals with our anxiety helps us to see it's people who are our best investment, not our home. It'll be those people who found love and friendship in your home who will be your investment and your joy and who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Those who came to faith balancing that cup of coffee on your favourite chair. I was converted, as was my mother and my sister, through a small house church in Kensworth, a small village in, on the Chiltern Hills and it was a couple who opened up a really lovely house and we, we, were, te- we were teenagers so you know, we really didn't treat it very well but we were always welcomed and a whole stack of us, probably 60, 65 or so became Christians through the witness of Ken and Frieda. Frieda died uh, last September, almost exactly a year ago and it was a wonderful funeral. Who would have welcomed her, those who predeceased her? Well, my, my, my mother, for one, would have been there. My sister's 11-year-old son, who died a few years ago, saying, Frida, thank you for leading my gran and my mother to the Lord and for us helping there to be a Christian family established that I would grow up in. That's what Jesus is saying here. So what about you students? This probably all seems a bit 
people with homes and lots of money and all the rest of it. How does this apply to us? Well, you have a chance, especially those of you who just come up to university, to set priorities for the rest of your life. If you're kind of the wobbly, nominal Christian, you're not sure where you're at, you're here because some nice people invited you and maybe help your mum to feel a bit happier about you being in this rough city of Sheffield um, by coming along to church. Um, You are so welcome, but keep coming to Christ Church Forward. This is a place of real safety and spiritual help to you. Keep coming here. Maybe ask a student friend to read Uncover John Gospel. If you don't know what that is, they should know. If they don't know, find somebody who does and read John's Gospel with them. You see, if Jesus is God and died and rose from the dead, you should be willing to give absolutely everything you have to be a follower of him, the one who loved you enough to die for you. Following Jesus is the most sensible thing in the world. What should it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your life without securing your eternal future? So this is a really sane thing for you to pursue right now while you're a student. If you've arrived at university as a really keen Christian, I think this passage is urging you to to start getting those priorities in place, to prioritise what Jesus does, simply people. It's all about people. Share your life generously. Don't live in a Christian bubble. Bubbles are fun, but you can't live in them, can you? Invest in people, yes, in church, yes, in Christian union, but way beyond in your course, in your sports team. Use all you have and own to gain friends for yourselves. You know what? This gospel really works. If you hang around long enough, if you get to my grand old age, you see how it comes around. A student came up to me at a a conference called Forum and said, Richard, you've never met me. My name's Joe. I'd just like to thank you very much. I said, Joe, sorry, I don't think we've met, have we? No, no, we haven't. But when you were a student, you led my dad to the Lord. And my dad wouldn't have married uh, my mum if you hadn't have led him to the Lord because she was on your CU committee. So I'm really glad you did that because I wouldn't have been born otherwise. I hope I'm not freaking you out. I said, Joe, it's great to hear. Well, that's one friend I made by not doing very much at all. Just telling my story, passing it on. The gospel really works. Are you shrewd, rich towards God? Are we using our money to make friends who welcome us into eternal dwellings. Or Jesus says, are we a rich fool? Investing in the world, we may at best end up a 1 Corinthians 3 Christian, saved but by the skin of our teeth, but utterly empty-handed, with no reward, not welcomed by anyone into eternal dwellings. You see, the difficulty is we can't serve two masters in this. We can't serve God and money, which is why... As Christians, we're constantly being urged to skim off, to offload our wealth, lest it weigh us down and we begin to think money is more important than relationships, than people. If money is our master, we will not be serving God. But if God is our master, our home, our whole life will be spent serving him and we'll use our money, we'll use our energy, we'll use everything we have to make friends who welcome us with great joy into eternal dwellings. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. Thank you that you don't patronize us. Thank you that you don't give us nice little semi-digestive platitudes, but you give us difficult, tough parables like that one. Lord, give us the good sense to come in line with your reality. We pray that we would value what you value and that as a result of tonight, we would come in line with you, with your agenda, that we would make your kingdom and your glory uppermost and we would invest in people and so make friends who will one day welcome us into eternal dwellings with great joy because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.